Well, go ahead and get your Bibles out, and uh, we'll continue in worship. We'll let God's Word now begin to speak, or maybe continue to speak into our lives. And uh, Mark 13, as you're turning to Mark 13, it's kind of crazy to think that in about a month from now we'll be done with uh, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, just, just as a little bit of a heads up in terms of where are we going from here, uh, we'll finish Mark in the last uh, Sunday of August, and then we'll take the month of September, we'll work, work through the first three chapters of Genesis. You could probably take a year to work through those uh, first three chapters, but uh, so many very prominent things that show up in those first few chapters, and we'll take uh, four weeks to look at that. And then starting um, in October, actually first weekend of October will be Mission Sunday, and have a number of our missionaries with us. That'll be kind of a distinct and unique uh, Sunday for us. And then after that, we'll go to the book of Galatians, and that will run us up close towards Christmas time, and then we'll get into the new year and go from there once we get a little bit closer. But for us now, we find ourselves in Mark 13, and um, <clears throat> let me, uh, as we move towards this text, and this is a pretty interesting text, a lot of different thoughts and opinions and interpretations on how this uh, plays out, but before we get to that, let me just begin our time by posing this question for each and every one of us here this morning. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? Okay, now, now that, that's a question. That's a question that, depending on the context, has very different meanings. Like if um, maybe one of you said to your spouse this morning, hey, you ready to go? And then that's in reference to coming to church. Maybe you're at a friend's house and you're getting tired and it's like, hey, you ready to go? It's like, come on, let's go. Wrap it up. I want to go home. Um, maybe it's something you say to your spouse in the morning as they're getting ready to leave for work. Maybe it's something you say to someone who's near death. Or approaching death. And as believers, it's a question that all of us, when we think about our life here on earth, we have to begin to wrestle and, and wonder about this question, am I ready uh, to go, right? Speaking of eternity. Now, we talk about eternity when we think about um, what, what, what awaits you and I after we breathe our last on this earth. We, we tend to, as believers, we tend to be kind of polarized in that either we tend to go all in on it and we focus only on that, and we ignore living in the moment of where God has us presently right here and now, um, or, or we do an equally uh, wrong thing in that, that we ignore eternity and say, you know, I'm living for the moment, I'm living for right now, and we're just going to press in on that, I'll deal with eternity when I get to it. Because I, what I think what the text wants to move us to here this morning is holding both of those items in equal tension. That, that I would faithfully persevere right in front of what's right in front of me, but all the while have my, my eyes and my heart and my hope fixed to eternity, fixed to a, a, a lifetime for all of life with our Lord and Savior in the presence of God. And this tension. And so the title of the message this morning is Faithful Perseverance. Here's where I think God's Word is going to move us this morning. Make note of this. Faithful perseverance moves us to a readiness for Jesus' return while living faithfully today. Faithful perseverance moves us to a readiness for Jesus' return while living faithfully today. That, that, that I'm ready, my, my heart and my hope is fixed on eternity and what is to come, but I will faithfully live in the moment of what's right in front of me. <clears throat> that I'll be intentional, that I'll be deliberate with whatever God chooses to entrust with me for today and tomorrow and next week and next month and three years and 10 years and 30 years from now. I'm not just ticking off the days waiting for eternity to start. 
And so with that, we come to the text. And Eric has prayed for our time. And so let's begin to look now here. Mark 13, I'm not going to read the entirety of the text at the outset because it's quite long. But as we come to this text, let me just say here at the outset that there's no shortage of interpretations, no shortage of, of what people think and how they interpret and what they believe is going on in here. But I think the structure of this text, understanding how it breaks down, will help us to avoid a lot of confusion, to avoid a lot, a lot of misunderstanding or wrong thinking with respect to what's happening. <clears throat> and so let me just talk about the whole of the text for a moment, and then we'll begin to walk through verse by verse. There's two primary aspects that are unfolding in Mark 13. The first is this, is that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. In fact, let me read to you just the first few verses of Mark 13. It says this, keep in mind the larger context. In the last chapter and a half, Jesus has been in the temple arguing with the religious leaders about a variety of different things where they've been confronting him and trying to trap him. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. He's talking about the whole of the temple complex. Isn't this amazing? Jesus' response in verse 2 is this, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's saying, listen, you see this? It's going to disappear. It's going to be destroyed. It looks great now. It won't look great a few years from now. And so they sit down. They move from from being where they are. It says in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, this is crucial, because the question in front of them is with respect to the destruction of the temple, something that happened in A.D. 70. And so, starting in verse 5 through verse 23, Jesus is speaking about the destruction of the temple. That's what he's talking about. And so the first portion of the text, and we're going to look at here in Mass in a moment, is the destruction of the temple. But flip over real quick, look at verse 24 and following. In verse 24, Jesus says this, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And see, here's the key. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Just curious, has that happened yet? That hasn't happened yet, has it? Okay, he's talking, these are two radically different events that he's speaking to. And so verses 1 through 23, I'm talking about the destruction of the temple. Verses 24 through 27, for some reason Jesus wants to tell them, I'm coming back. And we'll get to that as we move through. I think there's a reason for that. And then in verses 28 through 37, Jesus gives us two small lessons, two parables, two teachings that exhort or instruct us with respect to how we handle, uh, right, his listeners then, and certainly for us as well, how we handle the destruction of the temple and how we handle waiting for his return. And so in this, in the whole of this, we have this faithful perseverance, right, that we would live faithfully today with whatever God chooses to entrust or put in front of us today, that I would live faithfully in the midst of that and, and right in front of that, but as well with my eyes fixed towards eternity and the greater hope that is to come So three things in the text with respect to faithful perseverance. Here's the first one. Make note of this in verses 1 through 23. Jesus tells us to be on guard because destruction is coming. Be on guard. 
destruction is coming. And as we've already mentioned, the first four verses really setting the scene or, 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 or framing for us what he's talking about and that he's referencing the temple and its destruction. And so while it's specific to Jesus' time, and this is an event that happened in AD 70, this is almost 2,000 years ago, uh, there's certainly some prominent aspects in what Jesus says that are important for us to keep in front of us today, and we want to press those here this morning. And so notice this, first of all, be on guard, destruction is coming. There's a warning for you and I to be on guard. There's a warning for us to be on guard. In fact, repeatedly, Jesus gives us these warnings. Verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 6, meaning... <clears throat> Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and he will lead, and they will lead many astray. And then in verse 7 and 8, Jesus begins to answer initially the question, one of the questions the disciples put out. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must, this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. He's like, man... Here's part of the answer to your question of what are the signs, but it's just the beginning. This is just the front end. This is just the beginning. It's going to get much worse. He's telling us to be on guard. And prominent warnings that are given here that find great application for believers. So notice this first one. We see both in verses 5 and 6, and we haven't looked at verses 21 through 23, but we will in a moment here but it bookends this section that you and I would be on guard for false teachers. Be on guard of false teachers. See that no one leads you astray. Into verse 5. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Flip over to verse 21 and following. Here's what Jesus continues to say. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And then again, this caution to be on guard. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And so this whole section is bookended with these warnings. Be on guard of false teachers. Jesus is telling these guys, it's imperative that you're able to discern truth from error. That you have to know whether or not someone is speaking what God has actually said or not. That you and I would have the ability to know what God actually said, not what we believe someone is telling us that he said. Kind of like what's happening right now. I'm serious. I, we, we, we firmly believe that there's a high responsibility of anyone who would stand and preach and proclaim the word has a responsibility to faithfully teach and preach what is in the text. You have an equal responsibility that you would actively listen and engage what is being spoken in the text. That you would not be passive, but that you would actively engage. Is this true? Is this in the text? Is this what God has said? I'd like to think I'm not a false teacher. I'd like to think that you think that I'm not a false teacher. But God help us that each and every one of us on any given Sunday would show up and would be like the noble Bereans in Acts 17, where Paul tells us, that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Is, is, is that really what it says? Is that, is that what's really there? Is that what God means by that? Not in an undermining way, but in a way that it's like, no, we really want to get at what God is saying. To be on guard of false teachers. Okay, what are some ways, what are some ways that you and I can be on guard? 
How do we do this in our life? How do we make sure that we're not falling prey to false teachers and, and, and false teachings that exist out there? Well, the first is what we were just talking about, that you and I would examine the Scriptures. Examine the Scriptures, both with respect to what you hear on Sunday morning, what you hear on a podcast, man, whatever, any aspect of your life that I'm coming back and I'm holding it against the truth of God's Word, is this what the Scriptures are teaching me? You know, the way that you become more discerning is you have a better understanding of the truth. You spend more time in God's Word. You become more familiar with the Scriptures. You get better experience as you spend more time in the Word, as you fill your mind with its truth, as you see themes in the Scriptures. You become better at being able to discern what is, in fact, the truth of God and is not the truth of God. God, help us that we would be like the noble Bereans, that we would examine the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so in every aspect of our life. Examine the Scriptures. Secondly, another way we can be on guard, put yourself in situations of learning. Put yourself in situations of learning. Get in a discipleship group. Uh, come be a part of the theo- theology workshop. Uh, find ways to get around people with regularity who are further down the road than you are spiritually. One of the things that I love that the Apostle Paul said is he said, follow me as I follow Christ. He was not ashamed to tell others, I have something to offer you. Come follow me and let me help you. I think today, well, I, can't, I can't say that kind of arrogant and proud and we kind of do this oh well shucks I can't really say that bull it's in the bible Paul says it follow me as I follow Christ some of you hear me on this some of you have abdicated the role and responsibility that God has given you to lead others and it's an arrogance and a pride that leads you to that place. Don't, don't fool yourself that it's some false humility. No, it's arrogance or it's laziness or it's apathy. Whatever it is, it's wrong and it's sinful. Repent and embrace that role. Some of you are on the other side. I don't need to be led. I don't need anybody's help. I can do it on my own. Equally, e- equally wrong, equally sinful. Right? We... we We've got to be around people who are going to teach us and they're going to help us learn and we're going to grow in that. Have the humility to follow. Have the willingness to lead. Put yourselves in situations of learning. Here's another, uh, another way that helps you to be on guard. Look for teachers that move you toward Jesus. Look for teachers, whether it be whoever's preaching, or a podcast you listen to, your discipleship group, whatever. Look for people who point you and move you to Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. If you walk out of here, if you walk out of here today and you're like, man, Mike was great, that is an epic fail as far as I'm concerned. If you walk out of here and you say, Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better then we've succeeded. Don't look for people that you're impressed with. Look for people who will make you and point you to an impression of Jesus. That, 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 that's one of the greatest indicators of a true teacher or a false teacher. Do they point me to themselves? Do they point me to someone else? Or do they point me to Jesus? If they're not pointing you to Jesus, stop following them. You don't want to follow them. Be on guard. Got to be on guard of false teachers. 
Notice this secondly in verses 9 through 13. Jesus, again, warning these guys with respect to the temple, he tells them this, but be on your guard. And then listen to all the things that he says here to be on guard about. For they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial to deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever, whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Let me just point out real quick with respect to verse 11. That's not, that's not a verse that says, hey, let's not prepare and let's not study and we'll just trust God to speak to us. The context is persecution and suddenly placed before a tribunal or governing authorities or someone who would put you on trial or question you. And in that moment, God is going to give you the ability to speak. Don't ever use that verse to say, well, I'm just going to trust the Spirit to lead me. No, prepare. Study the Scriptures. Right? We were just talking about false teachers a moment ago. That's how you end up saying something that's not actually true. In verse 12, he continues, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. I mean, isn't this just an exciting picture of a glorious future he's laying out here? And then verse 13, just in case you didn't get it, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Right, there's your faithful perseverance showing up. Be on guard of persecution. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, pay attention. Be on guard. Persecution's coming. They're delivered over. They're beaten. Taken to trial. They're hated by all. He probably could have said a few other things, but I think the point is pretty clear at this point. See, the reality of the New Testament is that it portrays the life of a believer as one of suffering and persecution. Over and over and over again, when you read the New Testament, that is what you find. That is what you see. Is, is, is that as believers, it's going to be hard, and we're going to endure trials and difficulties and, and, and persecution and suffering. In Revelation 1, John says this. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Uh, Sorry. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He's writing that from an island because he was exiled for his faith. Peter in 1 Peter, keep in mind he's writing to people who've been exiled, who've been scattered because of their faith, says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Like, why, why do you act like you're shocked that there's persecution or suffering? You knew all along this is what we signed up for. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, writing from prison, his death is imminent says this to Timothy, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We go to other places in the Scripture, but you get the point, right? I mean, the, the reality of the New Testament is, is that persecution awaits believers. We, we, we can't be ignorant to this reality. We've got to understand that for, for, for some of us, many of us, all of us, at some level, we can and should expect persecution. Now, don't go looking for it, Okay? Uh, that's free. That advice is free. Don't go looking for it. It will find you. Don't go, um, <laughs> don't go unnecessarily searching for it. You know what I'm talking about? The person who's like, well, I'm supposed to be persecuted, so I'm going to speak like a moron and be super offensive when I don't have to, 
People aren't persecuting you. They're just treating you for being a fool. Okay? Don't confuse the two. It will come. It will come. And I think part of this, sometimes we, we will look at persecution and, and we won't even treat it as such. I, I, think, I think as believers that we do not give enough credence to the fact that you and I are living life while simultaneously a cosmic war is being fought and battled. You understand that? There's a a battle that is happening spiritually. We we don't see most of it. We see very little of it. The reality is is that it is unfolding constantly. Now, there's a couple of things you've got to understand about the battle. In one sense, it's already done. Satan is a defeated foe. It's done in terms of the final outcome. But at this moment, the battle still wages on. D.A. Carson, speaking of this, likened Satan and a defeated foe, and yet the battle still going on, to World War II and D-Day. He said, on that day, as as man after man and, and weaponry and material and whatnot poured onto the beach, it became clear that the war was settled. But what was Hitler's response? It wasn't to lie over and die. It was that he lashed out. The battle is done. What is Satan's response? He is not going to lay over and die. He will lash out. We live in that season. So why would we think that there wouldn't be persecution? Why would we think that it wouldn't be difficult or hard? We're living in the midst of that. And the implication of this is profound. Because listen, loved ones, if I expect Jesus to make my life easy, if I expect Jesus to make me prosperous, if Jesus exists that that all my troubles go away, then when the reality of life and the persecution that comes with following him shows up, at the very least I'm disillusioned with him, if not willing to simply walk away from him. Because all along I was banking on a false gospel. And so when the hardship shows up, I bail, I get angry, I'm bitter. God, why? And Jesus is like, I told you from the beginning. What do you mean, why? We just weren't paying attention. And this is why we have to think rightly about this truth. You know that we believe that every one of Jesus' disciples died martyrs' deaths? None of them lived to see retirement because they were killed for their faith. There are many people who will tell you today that today, right now, currently, more people are being martyred for their faith in Jesus than at any other point in human history. Now, some of the numbers are hard to verify, and um, I, I get a little bit uh, uncomfortable quoting things that you can't know for sure. But here's what we can know for sure. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to encounter opposition. You're going to encounter persecution for your faith. You can count on it. But here's the question that I think is in front of us is given that, given that, will that push you closer to him or will it drive you from him? That's what persecution is. It's anything that someone would do that would attempt to drive you away from an entity. And so as it comes, will it push you to the cross or will it push you away from Jesus? Be on guard of false teachers, be on guard of persecution. And I just wrote this other one down here. Uh, for verse 14 through 20. We'll just deal with it quickly. Be on guard of destruction. 
And starting in verse 14, Jesus says this, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let's talk about the abomination of desolation for a moment. That phrase first comes to us from the book of Daniel, multiple times referenced in the book of Daniel, uh, where Daniel uh, predicts uh, this, this desecration of the temple. Uh, most people believe that that was fulfilled in 167 AD by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who was uh, just a ruthless, ruthless dude, and so, uh, so opposed to the ways of God was that he uh, went into the temple, built a pagan altar in the temple, and then sacrificed pigs on the altar. Right? Pigs being, being utterly um, despicable to the Jews. I mean, you don't think this guy wasn't driving home a point? And so here again, Jesus references the abomination of desolation. Some people see this as a future event, end times event. I think in the structure of what uh, Jesus is talking about, I think he's actually referencing the eventual destruction of the temple in AD 70. No shortage of options as to what exactly the abomination of desolation actually is uh, in that time frame that leads up to that or actually in AD 70. But notice the urgency with which Jesus speaks to the disciples with respect to when that time comes. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Verse 17, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be and never will be. And if the Lord did not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Well, the Daniel reference is pretty clear for us. What Jesus is referencing specifically is much more ambiguous. I'll tell you that. It's a little bit confusing. We don't know for sure. <clears throat> I personally believe he's referencing the destruction of the temple. Um, and because it's a specific event that's in history past, I don't want to necessarily press it too much further in terms of he's going to destroy the church or things of that nature. That, that's a dangerous connection. Uh, suffice to say, through verses 5 through 23, Jesus is making a very clear warning that you and I are to be on guard because destruction is coming. It's going to come through false teachers. It's going to come through persecution. And specific to the audience of Jesus in Mark's day, it's going to come through the destruction of the temple and the abomination of desolation. That's a pretty grim picture. And I think that's why when you get to verse 24, Jesus wants to offer hope. He wants to point them to a reality that they can hold on to. And so in verse 24, <clears throat> Jesus says, but in those days after that tribulation, and, and at first reading you look at that and you go, well, he's, he, he's tying to that same event. And then maybe you go, well, after that tribulation, maybe he's referencing the next thing. But he starts talking about, this is end of time language that we see showing up. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And this is really the key, right? And then they'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. It's not a reference to Jesus' ascension in Acts 1. It's greater than that. And not only that, but verse 27 also um, points to end of time type activity. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
And so this grim picture that moves to this incredible portrait of hope. Second point, look forward, loved ones, look forward. Christ is returning. Look forward because he's coming back. And we look forward in excitement, right, and in anticipation, but we also look forward with respect to our perspective and our vision and and today and right now and how do I handle the difficulties of today and how do I walk through this trial and this struggle? Well, part of how I walk through it is that I know a day is coming where Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all wrongs right. He's going to heal every hurt. He's going to mend everything that's broken. That's how. Is that we hold on to that and I understand, I understand the, the trickiness of, wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me that the first 23 verses deals with an event that happened almost 2,000 years ago. Verse 24 and through 27 is talking about something that's yet to come. Yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. I think that's the way that the text plays out. I think part of what's happening here is what you would refer to as mountain peaks of prophecy. You ever stood at a distance and looked at a mountain range? And you see the peaks, and they're close to each other. But when you get up into the actual mountain range themselves, you might realize those peaks aren't anywhere near each other. And this is a way, this is an illustration that's often used uh, to refer to how uh, we're to understand the prophets. Because you you see this in the Old Testament. You might be reading somewhere in Isaiah, and he's talking about something that's going to happen 100, 200 years from now. And then within a few verses, he's talking about the end of time, or or, or hundreds, if not a thousand years down the road. How does that happen? Here's how. From the prophet's perspective, they saw mountain peaks. You have to remember, they, the, the Jewish people weren't as concerned with chronology in the way that you and I are. And so they looked at, okay, there's, there's point A and there's point B. And so they speak to the mountain peaks of prophecy, even though in reality those peaks may be far apart from each other. And I think that's what's happening in Mark 13. Jesus begins by answering your question, okay, when's the temple going to fall? Here's when. Here are the signs, earthquakes, famines, false teachers, persecution. Of course, we also know that's some of those things are the reality of all New Testament believers. But now he comes to verse 24, and I think Jesus' intent is let me give you hope for how you walk through this incredibly difficult season that's in front of you. Because I think it's hard to argue that verse 24 through 27 is anything but the second coming of Christ. And so it is meant to function as a stark contrast to the destruction, the persecution, and the hardship, and the difficulty, and the trials that believers will face as they live life and await the return of Christ. Jesus has just talked about the destruction of the temple, which would be utterly devastating for the Jews. And so how do you combat utter devastation? You give the greatest hope possible. And you tell them, I'm coming back. The Son of Man's going to return in glory. And He's going to make all things right. Now, when we think about look forward, Christ is returning. Let me just maybe speak pastorally here for a moment. My fear and my concern for believers is when we think of this, is that far too often we make the main event a peripheral event and we take peripheral events and we make them the main event. And we become so concerned with our particular eschatology, how the end times play out, and and the order of events and when certain things are going to happen and all of the details that in the process we miss the main event. 
We're so concerned on is he coming here or here or here or, or what does this look like? He's like, how about the fact that Jesus is coming back? Can we get fired up about that? Can we be excited about that part? We take the main event, we sit it on the side, and we take the peripheral events, and we make them the main event. Every piece, listen very carefully to me, every piece of eschatology points us to the return of Jesus. That's the main point. If you find yourself debating on something, and that is more important or more prominent to you than the actual return of the Savior, you've got to back off of that. You're missing the point. Yet far too often when we come to speaking of the return of Christ, well, let me tell you why I'm pre-trib or post-trib or uh, pre-millennial or amillennial. Or How about we talk about the fact that Jesus is going to come back? How about we talk about the fact that in Him there's hope and Him is the expectation and Him is the anticipation and Him is the eternal glory? Let me give you an example of this. The book of Revelation. Some people are terrified to preach it. Other people are too casual with how they preach it. And we'll preach it at some point in time here. And none of you will agree with everything that I say, and that's okay because I won't agree with everything you say. Because there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of unknowns in that book. There's a lot of question marks. And it's, can we just be honest, that there's a lot of weird things in that book? There's just, I mean, Jesus is sheathing a sword in his mouth and you've got these weird creatures and it's super bloody and gory at times and you've got bowls and seals and scrolls and numbers everywhere and what does that even mean? And it's kind of weird. Right, yeah, yeah, eating scrolls. I mean, we do all kinds of weird stuff. Here's, but what's the book about? What's, someone said it. God wins. The book is about the victory of Jesus and the defeat of Satan. And yet how often when we think of Revelation, talk about Revelation, preach from Revelation, we make it about a theological position. We make it about this little peripheral thing over here. Now, I'm all for us having, have a position, be informed, study, not advocating, well, let's just ignore it. What I'm saying is the bigger picture is about the victory of Jesus and the defeat of Satan. And for some of us, we'd look at verses 24 through 27 and we'd want to talk about the moon and the sun and the stars. And Jesus is like, I don't care. The Son of Man's coming back. The, the, those things just point to that. That's not the main event. Loved ones, look forward. Christ is returning. And when we speak of looking forward to Christ's return, let me just, let me just encourage us here for a moment. In fact, flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's just make this real practical, real tangible here for a moment with respect to the return of Christ. Let me give you four. We could do more than four, but I'm going to give us four ways that I think we help put our emphasis back on Jesus ultimately and with respect to his return and how it, not, not only do we emphasize that, but we're encouraged in the process. 1 Corinthians 15, the entire chapter is about the resurrection um, this is a chapter that you would, you would do well to revisit uh, with some regularity. Let me start in verse 20. It says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
when we look forward to Christ's return, the first thing is you and I have a greater hope. We have a greater hope because death is not the end. Death is actually the beginning. It's where it starts. And yet, some of you, some of you have been staring death in the face recently. Some of you, that's a very real possibility in the immediate future. Now, the truth is it's a very real possibility for all of us in the immediate future. You're not guaranteed your next breath. You're not guaranteed this week. Oh, we might do a funeral before we come back to church next Sunday. And it might be one of yours. So don't think just because you're young or healthy or not old and not unhealthy uh, that death isn't knocking at all of our doors. It is. But for all of us, as we consider the return of Christ and as we consider our life, part of what Paul is pointing us to here is that we have a greater hope. And that as we stare death in the face, we don't have to fear it. In fact, as believers, we can welcome it. We have a greater hope, and that hope is found in Jesus. Secondly, look at verse 24 through 26. It says, then, the, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. This is an awesome line. You might want to underline uh, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When we look forward to Christ's return, we look forward to an ultimate victory over sin and death. There's a victory over sin and death that we revel and enjoy the fullness of God. But you and I will not toil and struggle and wrestle through all of the fallout of sin one day. In fact, one of the ways that we see that is what we see later in the chapter in verses 42 through 44. Um, Paul talks about a resurrected body. Talks about what is sown is perishable, is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. We're going to have a resurrected body. One application of a number of applications of the ultimate victory over sin and death is that you and I won't get sick, we won't be diseased, there won't be deformity, uh, there, there won't be pain, there won't be dis dysfunction. You will have a body that is free from the curse of sin. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I'm so for that. I was cracking up this past week. I took my um, three boys on a hike, and uh, normally the twins uh, can hammer stuff, but it was a pretty steep hike, and th that next morning, uh, they woke up, and I was just watching them. They're like, oh, Dad, I'm sore, I'm sore, I'm sore. And my thought was, even in your youthful, seemingly perfect state of a body, you can't escape the curse. But a day will come when all of us will escape the curse. And then finally this, look at the last few verses of the chapter. I'm going to start in verse 55, actually the end of verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about those verses, and I want to press in on what's in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. While the first three really point us towards the future, this final one points us to this reality of what's right in front of us here today is that your labor, you and I have labor that's not in vain. 
what you do today matters eternally. And that phrase, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, it helps us to endure the difficulties, the struggles, the hardships, the failures, the disappointments, because on that tomorrow, God's going to say, loved one, this wasn't in vain. Look at what this accomplished. I was so thankful this week when Eric Anderson wrote me and said, hey, uh, for elder prayer, can I talk about Boyd, this friend of mine who's going to be here, and just kind of laid out the scenario that he laid out in front of you because of this very point right here. It's like, yeah, it's a perfect example. Labor that's not in vain. Boyd went over three decades having any idea if there was any impact whatsoever in Eric's life. Now, he was blessed this side of eternity to see it. I think there's going to be a lot of things on the other side that you and I won't even know. So inconsequential, felt so meaningless, so pointless. God, what was the point of that? And God's going to say, here, let me show you. Let me show you the fruit. Loved ones, would we look forward to his return? Would we live in a way that keeps in front of us, right? That, that we would live both rightly in the moment wherever God has us, but with a heart and a hope and a future for eternity. Think about what Paul says in Philippians 1. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's really it, isn't it? To live on earth is Christ. It's opportunity for mission. It's opportunity for service. It's opportunity for labor that will not be in vain. To die, it's gain. In fact, he says just a couple verses later, I'd, I'd much rather die and go and be with the Lord. But if I stay, that means fruitful labor. Look forward. Look forward. Christ is returning. Would we live our life in the hope that today there is opportunity for fruitful labor in each and every one of our lives? And whenever that tomorrow comes, now we go, hooray, we're done. And let's go celebrate. Look forward. Christ is returning. Here's the final thing. Flip back to Mark uh, now with me. And we see these final two teachings, and I just wrote this down, that we would hear what Jesus says, and what he's saying is be ready. Be ready. He gives us two teachings, two different teachings, that, that address, I, I believe, both the temple and the return of Jesus. I think the fig tree is pointing back to the temple in verses 28 through 31, and I think in verses 32 through 37, he's pointing to the return of the Son of Man. You might disagree, that's fine, there's a lot of ambiguity here, I, I, I won't disagree with you on that. I'm just telling you how I see it and what I think. That we would hear what Jesus says, be ready. And so notice the lesson from the fig tree. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. I think that's a reference to the abomination of desolation and what's coming. And I think verse 30 as well gives us insight, or at least why I believe this is referencing the destruction of the temple. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I think he's referencing back uh, roughly within 40 years this is going to happen. And uh, some, many of you will see to see, uh, live to see this. Whether it's to the temple, whether it's future looking, either way, it presses the theme of watchfulness, of preparation, of perseverance, and being ready. And then you have the lesson of the returning master. And where Jesus has great confidence about the fig tree, when you see this, this will happen. Notice with the master, there's a lot more ambiguity and uncertainty. 
But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And here again, he tells us, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Then he gives us this illustration. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This lesson of the returning master, two things I just want to point out briefly from the text that Jesus uh, says to us here. Look at verse 32 and 33. My encouragement to you is don't speculate on his return. Look at what, yes, you can speculate on, on the fact that he's going to return. Um, man, can we just let God's word be unmistakably clear here? But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. They don't know. And, and in case you didn't catch that at the end of verse 33, for you do not know when the time will come. Repeat after me, I do not know when Jesus is coming back. Okay, now um, you don't have to look very far in history to find plenty of examples of people who have made themselves to look like a fool trying to do the very thing that the text tells us not to do. You don't know. On this date, he's coming back. How many times have we run through those dates? And people end up looking like a loon, all right? And, and it undermines all of their credibility. We don't know. The scriptures are intentionally ambiguous. The scriptures create a tension that holds us in this place that in some sense, yes, there are things we can look for and there's other things that's like, you're not gonna know. You're gonna be surprised. You just won't know. Don't waste your time speculating on whether or not or when he's going to come back. You don't know. Here's what we do know. is that he tells us to be ready. Multiple times, stay awake, stay awake, um, be on guard, right? It's clear, what's clear is that you and I should be ready it's that you and I should be ready. He's calling us to watchfulness. He's calling us to preparation. It didn't happen a lot when I was growing up, but from time to time, uh, my mom would be out of town for the weekend, which meant my dad was home alone with uh, the kids. And that usually meant we ate a lot of pizza. I probably played more video games than normal and didn't do anything uh, with respect to cleaning our chores until about two hours prior to my mom's arrival. And then it was nothing short of chaos, right? Cleaning up the mess from the weekend. No thought whatsoever of the fact that she would, in fact, return. Far too many followers of Jesus live their life the same way. I ain't coming anytime soon. I got time. I'll get to that eventually. There's two problems with that. One is you're going to get caught off guard. And two, what are you doing with your life? If you're not living in preparation and readiness for Jesus, what are you doing with your life? You're probably wasting it. Any life that's not lived for Jesus is being wasted at some level. Any life that's being lived for Jesus is fruitful at every level. You've got to be ready. 
Don't be, don't, don't, don't be uh, like far too many that, hey, you know what? While the master's away, we're going to play. The scripture creates a clear tension that you and I simply won't know. And what it cautions us against is to not be caught off guard. Faithful perseverance moves us to a readiness for Jesus' return while living faithfully today. Eyes fixed on eternity, living fully and completely right where God has us. Loved ones, let's hear the warnings. Let's look forward to his return. Let's be ready. Let me pray. Jesus, as we, as we think, as we consider, as we... Um, God, I'm ready for you to come back right now. I'd be perfectly happy for you to rip the roof off this building and let's go. Um, but God, to this point in human history, you have not seen fit to return. And so God, my, my prayer for each and every one of us this morning is that, that you would give us a faithful perseverance, that we would live faithfully in the, the particular moments that you have placed us in. With, with, with hearts and, and eyes and minds for eternity, but as people who would faithfully, um, one step after another, one day after another, take the next step of where you have us. Help us to faithfully persevere. Help us to faithfully move forward in all things. For your name's sake, for your glory, for you and for you alone. We pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen.